As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit You think you're not slaves, but you are. The nine-to-five existence of your current lives is structured by the American so it leaves you really questioning everything you thought you knew. And this sense of separation, this sense of isolation is the thing that is within you and me. It makes us feel alien to everything else that's outside of us. So that is why as you sit there within your body and you look out through your eyeballs and you listen through your ears and you look around you, everything else is not you. And you don't fit. You're listening to Up Is Down with Dean Reiner. And now we come to the next problem. What is it that enforces the persona system, that enforces the folk idea system? The first level are the neighbors. What will the neighbors think? Little Sati won't throw herself on her husband's funeral pyre. What will the neighbors think? So we throw her on. This is the most important, really. Then we have the whole institutionalization of uh, morality and uh, social custom and so forth that enforces this system. Then we have the idea of nature, the idea of nature. People speak of, you know, natural moral laws and all that sort of thing, as though there were any such thing. And finally, with this, I represent the idea of transcendence. This is the sun door through which the soul goes, burning out all temporality into eternal life. The ideas that are represented here, the grades of ideas, are what enforce this circle. And when the persona system is enforced by the society, there will be a socially, locally conditioned anima animus system also. The image of the mother, she is of a member of a certain society, a certain race and so forth. This establishes this. Now there are two kinds of mythology. There's the 
what is called the right-hand path, the mythology of the village compound that keeps you fixed in the context of your world. And uh, you grow up here, you live as expected, you live a dignified, successful, and in a rich society, a richly um, developed life. On the other hand, you may flip out. You may have the feeling of incongruities here. This doesn't go with me. And then you move out. You move out into a realm of danger. This is known as the left-hand path. You follow the way of your own bliss. And you are in a realm for which there are no rules. And since your bliss is not mine, you don't know where you're going. Here you will live a life of danger, creativity, perhaps not a respected life, but certainly an interesting one. And uh, these are the two choices. And there are mythologies for both. There's the right-hand mythology, which is local to each culture. And then there is what I would call the general mythology of the hero journey, the night sea journey, the hero quest, where the individual is going to bring forth in his life something that was never beheld before, namely the fulfillment in time and space of his own potentialities, which are peculiar to himself. Welcome back to another episode of the Up Is Down podcast with me, your host, your neighbor, your friend, your shadow in the night, Dean Weiner, coming at you from the aviary, the chalet, in an undisclosed, blacked-out area of Northwest Oregon. I'm doing another podcast on the porch on the same night. I just recorded a different one. It's been a podcasting kind of day. I'm kind of getting back into the groove of things. And uh, that intro was Joseph Campbell. Many of you probably already know who Joseph Campbell is, the power of myth. He's the man. He's the uh, expert, I guess you would say, in the Western world of mythology, the Jungian aspects of the archetype. And that little clip I thought was really important and interesting because I've been thinking a lot about the path, spiritual paths that people take, my own in particular, perhaps you're thinking about yours. And it's come to a certain level of notice for me in the last year or two, three maybe. Things, this dichotomy, this thing, the left-hand path, the right-hand path, and lots of occultists and neo-occultists and pseudo-occultists, all their self-proposed names, practitioners of all different sorts of magic or ritual or just logic, all proclaim some sort of allegiance or alliance or manifestation of a left-hand path seems to be the predominant one. Maybe it's just the circles I run in. Maybe it's just the people I'm interested to. Maybe it's just my archetype gravitating towards something that I can gel with, resound with. But it seems to me, and more I study, uh, very on, on a very cursory level, the left-hand path, right-hand path, spiritual path, it seems to me that I've always been, I guess, uh, primarily drawn to and at home within uh, a, a left-hand path non-conformist type of outsider role. That's sort of been my identity, I guess, as ever since I was a very young child, I've always felt like I was sort of outside of the club, last picked for the team, never really wanted to be in a team. I abhor groups. So I thought I would do 
maybe a short episode about things that are just kind of on my mind. I'm just kind of flying off the cuff. It's been a, a whole free day of just rolling on tape, talking into a mic, thinking about things, finding stuff, researching stuff, just thinking about things, talk, talking out loud, thinking out loud. So I think I'm going to talk a little bit about left-hand path, right-hand path, the Jungian archetypes and whatnot, but uh, real, real quick. And also, I have no, um, no producers to credit for this show because I'm just kind of on a, I'm on a bit of a tear. So anyway, I just want to give a shout out real quick to Brian Chappell. Uh, he gave me, a, he was the uh, um, executive associate producer of the last, I think it was episode 100. Thanks, Brian. Um, yes, your donation came through. And although it's appreciated, it's, it's unimportant. Uh, it, it pales in the importance as to uh, the value I place on your correspondence and your fucking friendship, man. I think you're a rad guy. And I, I really appreciate your emails and your support and your, your dedication to this particular practice that I do, this particular work that I'm producing. I know it, it, it is valuable to you, and, and uh, I just I really appreciate that. So shout out, Brian Chappell. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and give you the executive producer credit for this episode. In any case, uh, to answer your questions about that manifest group, uh, that group camp out I went to a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, it really wasn't um, as bad as maybe I thought it was, or it was gonna, I, I kind of made it out to be. It was actually very low key. There weren't a bunch of people partying together. There was no loud techno music at night. I don't know if you went to Squatch Fest, but that's that's what I heard Squatch Fest was all about. I, I avoid those kind of things for those very reasons. Uh, like like you, I I just avoid that kind of situation altogether. I think it's a bore. Honestly, it bores me to death and drives me to drink. And I end up getting fucked up, and I hate being fucked up. Uh, but yeah, and, and, and in any case, you know, it was a really good time, and I spent some really good quality time with just a, a handful of really, really wonderful people that I had never really met before um, too much. And it, it, was, it, was, it was pretty great. It was pretty great. So um, maybe next time it comes around, uh, maybe I'll see you there. I'm probably going to, you know, I might hit it up again next year. We'll see if we're all still alive. But Anyway, thanks for your support, Brian, and uh, and this one's this one's for you, buddy. So anyway, getting back to it, this whole left hand path, right hand path thing. I don't know much about it, honestly. I don't really bother to um, to really dig in deep and identify where I fit in in places. You know, it's just something that's never really been an interest or a concern for me. I just I kind of have an idea of of uh, who I am, and I am's what I am's, and that's just kind of the way it is, and. Honestly, I'm quite comfortable in my own skin, and I'm quite comfortable around other people, and I'm quite comfortable alone for long periods of time. I'm very sociable, very friendly, very full of love and light in many ways, but also could do without um, input of others. I, I am my own cult, and I tend to walk my own, la- my, my own, my own path, and uh, I have my own practice of living, and it is what it is, and I fucking love it. I fucking love the life that I live. And if it just so happens that I end up falling, I guess, if you're going to draw lines on a left-hand path, and so be it. I Honestly, I could care less about left or right. But I do find a particular interest in the way that these paths are drawn and the way that people that I tend to relate to fall on these paths in their own life and in their own spiritual practice, on their own spiritual journeys. And I tend to stay away from people who don't have a concept of a spiritual journey. I And maybe that's what makes me a left-hand path type person. I don't know. I have noticed, though, over my lifetime that the people that I really adore being around, the people that I really appreciate and value as human beings, 
as forces to be reckoned with are people that have at least an inclination toward a spiritual path. And it doesn't matter to me at all what angle they go. It just seems to me that it's apparent, very immediate, that the people that I love and I love being around are on a path in the first place. And it's never something that I uh, try to reckon immediately. It's never something that I notice after the fact. It's just something about a person that makes itself known and gives that person more gravity, more dimension, and uh, more power. And like anyone else, I seek to attain power. I seek to attain some sort of dimension and depth within my own understanding of my mind and how my body fits into this form and how uh, the spirit that is within me can travel this dimension, seemingly unscathed for the most part. And I don't know if that's uh, some sort of weird immunity to psychosis or um, just a solo path as it is, but that's just kind of where I'm at. I'm just kind of thinking out loud and rambling. I'm sitting on the porch, having some smokes, having a couple beers, and so I'm going to talk about that. But first, I came across a really interesting article that I think I'm going to go ahead and read. And I'm going to read it cold. I've never read it before, but I started kind of glancing through it a little bit. And it, it seems to me that it kind of dovetails nicely with the episode 100 cult episode. I think it's a really good segue into the larger concept and the, and the larger conversation I'm having with myself here on the porch about a spiritual journey and about a solo path, whether that's a left or a right, is, is relevant, honestly, in the context of this. But uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and read this article. So the article is called Mob Morality and the Unvaxxed. It was written by Charles Eisenstein on the 1st of August. It's part three. It's a standalone piece, but it's part three of a series. And it begins with a quote, a quote from uh, Joseph Goebbels. Propaganda must facilitate the displacement of aggression by specifying the targets for hatred. Charles Eisenstein goes on to write in this article, We would like to think that modern societies like ours have outgrown barbaric customs like human sacrifice. Sure, we still engage in scapegoating and figuratively sacrifice people on the altar of public opinion, but we don't actually kill people in hopes of placating the gods and restoring order. Or do we? Some scholars believe we do. Following the thought of the late philosopher René Giraud, they argue that human sacrifice is still with us today in the form of capital punishment and incarceration. By the way, René Giraud was uh, quoted at length in that tribalism video that I played in episode 100. Giraud believed that human sacrifice arose in response to what he called a sacrificial crisis. The original sacrificial crisis, the greatest threat to early societies, was escalating cycles of violence and retribution. The solution was to redirect the vengeance away from each other and, in violent unanimity, toward a scapegoat or class of scapegoats. Once established, this pattern was memorialized in myth and ritual, applied preemptively as human sacrifice, and carried out in response to any other crisis that threatened the society. In this view, capital punishment originated in human sacrifice, and it is human sacrifice. It performs the same function, which is to forestall the reciprocal violence through unanimous violence. It does so by monopolizing vengeance, 
truncating the cycle of retaliatory violence at the first iteration. This works whether the subject of execution or incarceration is guilty of a crime or not. Justice is a cover story for something more primal. Theologian Brian K. Smith writes, the subject of a modern execution might also be carrying multivalent significance. Among other things, like racial and economic metonomic potentialities, such a figure might serve as a representative of all crime, of, quote, disorder and social, quote, chaos, and the, quote, breakdown of values, etc. Apart from any utilitarian deterrent effect capital punishment might have, it is one rather drastic response to a social problem, illegal and illicit violence. In other words, what we rationalize in the language of justice and deterrence is actually a blood ritual in which a person, whether guilty or not, becomes a symbol. Ritual springs up irrepressibly around executions. The last meal, the dead man walking to the special execution chamber, the witnesses, the medical procedures, the presiding physician, the signed papers, the last rites, the covering of the head, the precise timetable, the final words, and the exacting attention to detail all mark off the execution as separate, as special, as sacred. Something must be done. In a lucidly argued paper, legal scholar Roberta Harding offers several examples from the Deep South during Jim Crow, where judge, jury, and prosecutor well knew that the accused black man was innocent of the charge of raping a white woman. However, because the white supremacist social order was threatened by consensual interracial intercourse, they executed the accused anyway. If they failed to do so promptly, he was lynched. Partly, this was to set an example and terrify the black population, but partly it was because something had to be done. By the same token, it mattered little that Afghan villagers or Iraqi politicians had no culpability for 9-11, nor did it matter that bombing them into oblivion would have had no practical effect on future terrorism, except to further inflame it. Obviously, the United States was using 9-11 as a pretext to accomplish larger geopolitical aims. Yet it worked as a pretext only because of broad public agreement that something must be done. And enacting the age-old pattern, we knew what to do. Find some target of unifying violence that cannot effectively retaliate. I was dismayed in 2001 when, at Quaker meeting of all places, one of the Quakers said, of course, a forceful response of some kind is necessary. What, I wondered, does forceful mean? It means bombing someone. In other words, we must find someone upon whom to visit violence. He may have, he may have also mentioned addressing the imperialist causes of terrorism, but those were not the subject of, of course. Nearly everyone instinctively took for granted the necessity of finding sacrificial victims. We were definitely going to bomb someone. The only question was whom. The 9-11 attack exemplifies what Harding calls a triggering incident, which resuscitates dissensions, rivalries, jealousies, and quarrels within the community, leading to a sacrificial crisis. A recent such incident was the murder of George Floyd. The latent conflicts it exposed have been festering for so long that it takes little provocation for them to erupt into an active crisis. The response to Floyd's murder is a classic illustration of the calming power of violent unanimity, 
as Derek Chauvin's conviction and sentencing temporarily quelled the racialized civil unrest that the killing sparked. Something was done. Something was done. But only to quell the unrest, not to solve the complex, heavily ramified problem of police killings. It no more addressed the source of America's race problems than killing Osama bin Laden made America safe from terrorism. Not just any victim will do as an object of human sacrifice. Victims must be, as Harding puts it, quote, in but not of the society. That is why during the Black Death, mobs roamed about murdering Jews for poisoning the wells. The entire Jewish population of Basel was burned alive, a scene repeated throughout Western Europe, yet this was not mainly the result of pre-existing virulent hatred of Jews waiting for an excuse to erupt. It was that victims were needed to release social tension, and hatred, an instrument of that release, coalesced opportunistically on the Jews. They qualified as victims because of their in but not of status. Combating hatred is combating a symptom. Scapegoats needn't be guilty, but they must be marginal, outcasts, heretics, taboo breakers, or infidels of one kind or another. If they are too alien, they will be unsuitable as transfer objects of in-group aggression. Neither can they be full members of society, lest cycles of vengeance ensue. If they are not already marginal, they must be made so. It was ritually important that Derek Chauvin be cast as a racist and white supremacist. Then his removal from society could serve symbolically as the removal of racism itself. Just to be clear here, I am not saying Derek Chauvin's conviction for George Floyd's murder was unjust. I am saying that justice was not the only thing carried out. Representatives of Pollution Aside from criminals, who today serves as the representatives of Smith's disorder, social chaos, and breakdown of values that seem to be overtaking the world? For most of my life, external enemies and a story of the nation served to unify society, communism and the Soviet Union, Islamic terrorism, the mission to the moon, and the mythology of progress. Today the Soviet Union is long dead, terrorism has ceased to terrify, the moon is boring, and the mythology of progress is in terminal decline. Civil strife burns ever hotter without the broad consensus necessary to transform it into unifying violence. For the right, it is Antifa, Black Lives Matter protesters, critical race theory academics, and undocumented immigrants that represent social chaos and the breakdown of values. And for the left, it's the Proud Boys, right-wing militias, white supremacists, QAnon, the Capitol rioters, and the burgeoning new category of, quote, domestic extremists. And finally, defying left-right categorization is a promising new scapegoat class, the heretics of our time, the anti-vaxxers. As a readily identifiable subpopulation, they are ideal candidates for scapegoating. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It matters little whether any of these pose a real threat to society. As with the subjects of criminal justice, their guilt is irrelevant to the project of restoring order through blood sacrifice or expulsion from the community by incarceration or, in more tepid but possibly prefigurative form, through canceling. All that is necessary is the dehumanized class arouse the blind indignation and rage necessary to incite a paroxysm of unifying violence. More relevant to current times, this primal mob energy can be harnessed towards fascistic political ends. Totalitarians right and left invoke it directly when they speak of purges, ethnic cleansing, racial purity, and traitors in our midst. Sacrificial subjects carry an association of pollution or contagion. Their removal thus cleanses society. I know people in the alternative health field who are considered so unclean that if I so much as mention their names in a tweet or Facebook post, the post will be deleted. Deletion is a certainty if I link to an article or interview with them. The public's ready acceptance of such blatant censorship cannot be explained solely in terms of its believing the pretext of, quote, controlling misinformation. Unconsciously, the public recognizes and conforms to the age-old program of investing a pariah subclass with the symbology of pollution. This program is well underway toward the COVID unvaxxed, who are being portrayed as walking cesspools of germs who might contaminate the sanctified brethren, the vaccinated. My wife perused an acupuncture Facebook page today, which one would expect to be skeptical of mainstream medicine, where someone asked, what's the word that comes to mind to describe unvaccinated people? The responses were things like filth, assholes, death eaters. This is precisely the dehumanization necessary to prepare a class of people for cleansing. The science behind this portrayal is dubious. Contrary to the association of the unvaccinated with public danger, some experts contend that it is the vaccinated that are more likely to drive mutant variations through selection pressure. Just as antibiotics result in higher mutation rates in adaptive evolution in bacteria, leading to antibiotic resistance, so may vaccines push viruses to mutate, hence the prospect of endless boosters against endless new variants. This phenomenon has been studied for decades, and this article is my favorite, and this article in my favorite math and science website, Quanta, describes, and he uh, has a link to an article here. The mutated variants, although this, it doesn't matter how many links you have to how many articles you want, those are Ouija boards. I think what we're getting at here, and I'm just I'm sidelining from the article here for a minute, it doesn't matter how many links you post to whatever science or facts or truths, all of it is Ouija board. Okay, back to the article. The mutated variants evade the vaccine-induced antibodies in contrast to the robust immunity that, according to some scientists, those who have already been sick with COVID have to all the variants. See, this and this more articles, more links, it doesn't fucking matter. It is not my purpose here, however, to present a scientific case. My point 
is that those in the scientific and medical community who dissent from the demonization of the unvaxxed contend not only with opposing scientific views, but with ancient, powerful, psychosocial forces. They can debate the science all they want, but they are up against something much bigger. Bingo. Rwandan scientists could just as well debate the precepts of Hutu power for all the good that they would have done. Perhaps the Nazi example is more apposite here, since the Nazis did invoke science in their extermination campaigns. Then, as now, science was a cloak for something more primal. The hurricane of sacrificial violence easily swept aside the minority of German scientists who contested the science of eugenics, and it wasn't because the dissidents were wrong. We face a similar situation today. If the mainstream view on COVID vaccines is wrong, it will not be overthrown by science alone. The pro-vaccine camp has a powerful non-scientific ally in the collective id, expressed through various mechanisms of ostracism, shaming, and other social and economic pressure. It takes courage to defy a mob. Doctors and scientists who express anti-vaccine views risk losing funding, jobs, licenses, just as ordinary citizens face censorship on social media. Even a non-polemic essay like this one will likely be censored, especially if I stain it with the pollution of the heretics by linking blacklisted websites or articles by the disinformation dozen anti-vaxxers. Here, let's try it for fun. Here's a bunch of links, Green Med Info, Children's Health Defense, Mercola.com. Ah, that felt a little like shouting swear words in public. You better not follow these links lest you be tainted by their pollution and your browsing history mark you as an infidel. And aside here from the article, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. That's why I use Brave Browser. Even though it's not 100% safe, there is nowhere you can go on the internet that there isn't tracking robots and cookies collecting all of your data and putting it into some database being collated for future scrutiny. Period. That is it. There is nowhere you can go. So even if you have a, a VPN, good luck with that. Okay, back to the article. Moving on. To prepare someone for removal as a repository of all that is evil, it helps to heap upon them every imaginable calumny. Calum calumny. I don't know what that word is. Thus we hear in mainstream publications that anti-vaxxers are not only killing people, but are raging narcissists, white supremacists. They're vile. They're spreaders of Russian disinformation and tantamount to domestic terrorists. These accusations are amplified by cherry-picking a few examples, choosing hysterical-looking photos of anti-vaxxers, and showcasing their most dubious arguments. For what it's worth, and this is, again, Dean here, for what it's worth, um, the, the non-vaxxers and the skeptical do the same thing to the other side. That's kind of what I was talking about in episode 100. It's, it's two cults, but they're the same cult, and they have the same processes and the same methods and the same methodology to get about their rituals. Okay, back to the article. If the authorities follow the playbook developed to counter other domestic threats, we can also expect agent, we can also expect agent provocateurs, entrapment schemes, government agents voicing violent positions to discredit the movement, and so forth. Techniques developed, perfected in the infiltration of the civil rights, environmental, and anti-globalist movements. That's all fact. Concerned friends have advised me to, quote, distance myself from members of the disinformation dozen, whom I know, as if they carry some kind of contagion. Well, in a sense, they do. The contagion of disrepute. It reminds me of Soviet times, where mere association with the dissident could land one in the gulag with them. 
It also reminds me of my school days when it was social suicide to be friendly with the weird kid whose weirdness would rub off on oneself. In grade school, this contagion was known as cooties. In my early teens, I was the weird kid, and only very brave teenagers would be friendly to me while anyone was watching. I can speak to that myself here. Clearly, the basic social dynamic clearly the basic social dynamic pervades society at many levels. A deeply ingrained gut instinct recognizes the danger of membership in a pariah subclass. To defend the pariahs or to fail to show sufficient enthusiasm in attacking them marks one with suspicion. The result is self-censorship and discretion, contributing all the more to the illusion of unanimity. Hijacking Morality The same kind of positive reinforcement cycle is what generates a mob. All it takes is a few loud people to incite it by declaring someone or something a target. A portion of the crowd goes along enthusiastically. The rest keep silent and conform in outward behavior, even as, even as they are troubled within. To each, it looks like he or she is the only one who disagrees. Writ large to the totalitarian state, the support of a majority of the population is unnecessary. The appearance of support will suffice. The mechanisms that generate the illusion of unanimity operate within science, medicine, and journalism, as well as among the general public. Some conform enthusiastically to the orthodoxy, while others complain in whispers to sympathetic colleagues. Those who voice dissent publicly become radioactive, the consequences of their apostasy, excommunication from funding, ridicule in the media, shunning by colleagues who must distance themselves, etc., serves to silence other potential dissidents who prudently keep their views to themselves. Notice that here I have not yet said what I personally think about vaccine safety, efficacy, or necessity. Nonetheless, what I have said is enough for anyone to distance themselves from me in order to keep safe. If I'm not an anti-vaxxer myself, I certainly have their cooties. Someone on an online forum that I co-host related an incident to me. His children had a playdate scheduled at their friend's house. A parent called him to ask him if his family had been vaccinated. Politely, he said no, and his children were immediately disinvited. The author has a nice little link here, a quote from Dr. Seuss about the star-bellied children. When the star-bellied children went out to play ball, could a plain belly get in the game? No, not at all. You only could play ball if your bellies had stars, and the plain-bellied children had none upon theirs. While this parent doubtless believed he was being scientific in canceling the invitation, I doubt science was really the reason. Even the most COVID-orthodox person understands that the non-symptomatic children of non-symptomatic parents pose negligible risk of infection. Furthermore, since vaccine believers presumably trust that the vaccine provides protection, rationally speaking, they have little to fear from the unvaccinated. The risk is vanishingly small, but the moral indignation is huge. Many, if not most people, get the vaccine in an altruistic civic spirit, not because they personally fear getting COVID, but because they believe they are contributing to herd immunity and protecting others. By extension, those who refuse the vaccine are shirking their civic duty, hence the epithets filth and assholes. They become the identifiable representatives of social decay, ready for surgical removal from the body politic like cancer cells, all conveniently located in the same tumor. 
Social stability depends on people rewarding altruism and deterring antisocial behavior. These rewards and deterrence are encoded into morals and then into norms and taboos. Performing the rituals and avoiding the taboos of the tribe and shaming and punishing those who do not, one rests serenely in the knowledge of being a good person. As an added benefit, one distinguishes oneself as part of the moral majority, a full member of society, and not part of the sacrificial minority. Our fears of nonconformity is born of ancient experience so deeply ingrained it has become an instinct. It is hard to distinguish it from morality. The fear operating in the ostracism of the unvaxxed is mostly not fear of disease, though disease may be its proxy. The main fear, old as humanity itself, is of a social contagion. It is a fear of association with the outcasts, coded as moral indignation. In any society, some people are especially zealous in enforcing group norms, values, rituals, and taboos. They may be controlling types, or they may simply care about the common good. They serve an important function when the norms and rituals are aligned with social and ecological health. But when corrupt forces hijack the norms through propaganda and the control of information, these good folks can become instruments of totalitarian control. Those doing the scapegoating may honestly, even fervently, believe the narratives of the unvaccinated endangering others. Again, while I find the evidence to the contrary persuasive, I won't try to build a case for it beyond the hints I've offered already. As the saying goes, you can't reason someone out of a position they didn't reason themselves into to begin with. Furthermore, most of the citations I would use come from blacklisted sources, which, owing to their heresy, are unacceptable to those who trust official sources of information. If you trust the official sources, why, then you trust their exclusion of the heretical misinformation. When official sources exclude all dissent, then all dissent becomes a priori invalid to those who trust them. Consequently, much of the dissent migrates to dodgy right-wing websites without the resources to check facts and scrutinize sources. One would think, for example, that a highly credentialed scientist like Dr. Peter McCullough, a professor of medicine, author of hundreds of peer-reviewed articles, and president of the Cardio-Renal Society of America, would be able to find a hearing outside of the right-wing media ecosystem, but no. He's been sidelined to places like the right-wing Catholic John Henry Western show. I wish I could find a link to his persuasive interview somewhere else, especially because there is actually nothing right-wing about McCullough's views whatsoever. Tragically, the sites that host people like McCullough are quite often home to anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ articles that use the same tactics level that anti-vaxxers tap into the same template of dehumanization and scapegoating and lend themselves to the same fascistic ends. Here's Dean jumping in again. That's exactly the thing. It's the same cult. It's the same cult. Moving on. Moving the masses. For these reasons, I won't try too hard to substantiate my belief that and I may as well say it explicitly as a gesture of goodwill to the censors who will thus have an easier time deciding what to do with this article, the COVID vaccines are much more dangerous, less effective, and less necessary than we are told. They also seem not as dangerous, at least in the short term, as some fear. People are not dropping dead in the streets or turning into zombies. <clears throat> Most of my vaccinated friends seem to be just fine, so it's hard to know. The science on the issue is so clouded by financial incentives and systemic bias that it is impossible to rely on it to light a way through the murk. 
the system of research in public health suppresses generic medicines and nutritional therapies that have been demonstrated to greatly reduce COVID symptoms and mortality, leaving vaccines as the only choice. It also fails to adequately investigate numerous plausible mechanisms for serious long-term harm. Of course, plausible does not mean certain. At this point, no one knows, or indeed could ever know, what the long-term effects will be. My point, however, is not that the anti-vaxxers are right in being unjustly persecuted. It is that their persecution enacts a pattern that has little to do with, what they, with whether they are right or wrong, innocent or guilty. The unreliability of the science underscores that point and suggests that we take a hard look at the deadly social impulses that the science is cloaking. To say that official sources exclude all dissent overstates the case. In fact, peer-reviewed publications and highly credentialed medical doctors and scientists concur with, mu with much of what I've said. Admittedly, they are in the minority. But if they were right, we would not easily know it. For the mechanisms for controlling misinformation work equally well to control true information that contradicts official sources. The foregoing analysis is not meant to invalidate other explanations for COVID conformity, the influence of big pharma on research, the media and government, reigning medical paradigms that see health as a matter of winning a war on germs, a general social climate of fear, obsession with safety, the phobia and denial of death, and perhaps most importantly, the long disempowerment of individuals to manage their own health. Nor is the foregoing analysis incompatible with the theory that COVID and the vaccination agenda is a totalitarian conspiracy to surveil, track, inject, and control every human being on Earth. There can be little doubt that some kind of totalitarian program is well underway, but I have long believed it an emergent phenomenon agglomerating synchronicities to fulfill the hidden myth and ideology of separation and not a premeditated plot among human conspirators. Now I believe that both are true. The latter subsidiary to the former, its avatar, its symptoms, its expression. While not the deepest explanation for humanity's current travail, conspiracies and the secret machinations of power do operate, and I've come to accept that some things about our current historical moment are best explained in those terms. Whether the totalitarian program is premeditated or opportunistic, deliberate or emergent, the question remains. How does a small elite move the great mass of humanity? They do it by aggravating and exploiting deep psychosocial patterns such as the Girardian. Fascists have always done that. We normally attribute programs, pogroms and genocide to racist ideology, the classic example being anti-Semitic fascism. From the Girardian perspective, it is more the other way around. The ideology is secondary, a creation, and a tool of impending violent unanimity. It creates its necessary conditions. The same might be said of slavery. It was not that Europeans thought Africans were inferior and so thus enslaved them. It was that thinking them inferior was required in order to enslave them. On an individual level too, who among us has not operated from unconscious shadow motivations? creating elaborate enabling justifications and post-facto rationalizations of actions to harm others. Why is fascism so commonly associated with genocide, when as a political philosophy it's about unity, nationalism, and the merger of corporate and state power? It is because it needs a unifying force, powerful enough to sweep aside all resistance. The us of fascism requires a them 
the civic-minded moral majority participates willingly, assured that it is for the greater good. Something must be done. The doubters go along, too, for their own safety. It's no wonder today's authoritarian institutions know, as if instinctively, to whip up hysteria toward the newly minted class of deplorables, the anti-vaxxers, and the unvaccinated. Fascism taps into, exploits, and institutionalizes a deeper instinct. The practice of creating dehumanized classes of people and then murdering them is older than history. It emerges again and again under all political systems. Our own is not exempt. The campaign against the unvaccinated, garbed in the white lab coat of science, munitioned with biased data, and waving the pennant of altruism, channels a brutal, ancient impulse. Does that mean that the unvaccinated will be rounded up in concentration camps and their leaders ritually murdered? No. They will be segregated from society in other ways. More importantly, the energies invoked by the scapegoating, dehumanizing, pollution-associating campaign can be applied to gain public acceptance for more coercive policies, particularly policies that fit the narrative of removing pollution. Currently, a vaccine passport is required to visit certain certain countries. Imagine needing one to go shopping, drive a car, or even leave your home. It would be easily enforceable anywhere that has implemented the Internet of Things in which everything from automobiles to door locks is under central control. The flimsiest pretext will suffice once the ancient template of sacrificial victim, the repository of pollution, has been established. René Girard was, from what I read of his work, something of a fundamentalist. I do not agree with him that all desire beyond mere appetite is mimetic or that all ritual originates in a sacrificial violence, powerful though these lenses are. By the same token, I do not want to reduce our current acceleration toward techno-totalitarianism and a biosecurity state by just one psychosocial explanation, however deep it is. Yet it is important to recognize the Javardian pattern so we know what we are dealing with, so that we can creatively expand our resistance beyond futile debate over the issues, and most importantly, so we can identify its operation within ourselves. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Any movement that leverages contempt in its rhetoric fits the Girardian impulse. Elements of scapegoating such as dehumanization, Rumor-mongering, stereotyping, punishment as justice, and mob mentality are alive within, dissent, within dissident communities as they are in the mainstream. Anyone 
Any who ride those powers to victory will create a new tyranny no better than the previous. There is another way, and there is a better future. And I will describe it to you in part four of this essay, although the reader already knows what it is, by feel, if not by words. This future reaches into the present and the past to show itself any time that vengeance gives way to forgiveness, enmity to reconciliation, blame to compassion, judgment to understanding, punishment to justice, rivalry to synergy, and suspicion to laughter. Transcendence is in the human being. All right, so yeah, that's uh, Mob Morality and the Unvaxxed, essay written by Charles Eisenstein. Fantastic article. I'm going to link it in the show notes to the podcast. Now, I wonder if you're asking, what does this have to do with the left and right-hand path? Come on, Dean, let's get to it. Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and replay that Joseph Campbell clip. It's about three minutes, and it's a good warm-up to kind of circle back, Jen Psaki style. And I want you to consider the human archetype form, the, the Jungian archetype of the village, the community, and the individual. Try to make note of the go-along to get-along versus the go-your-own-way. And now we come to the next problem. What is it that enforces the persona system, that enforces the folk idea system? The first level are the neighbors. What will the neighbors think? Little Sati won't throw herself on her husband's funeral pyre. What will the neighbors think? So we throw her on. This is the most important, really. Then we have the whole institutionalization of uh, morality and uh, social custom and so forth that enforces this system. Then we have the idea of nature, the idea of nature. People speak of, you know, natural moral laws and all that sort of thing, as though there were any such thing. And finally, with this, I represent the idea of transcendence. This is the sun door through which the soul goes, burning out all temporality into eternal life. The ideas that are represented here, the grades of ideas, are what enforce this circle. And when the persona system is enforced by the society, there will be a, a, a socially, locally conditioned anima animus system also. The image of the mother, she is of a member of a certain society, a certain race and so forth. This establishes this. Now there are two kinds of mythology. There's the, what is called the right-hand path, the mythology of the village compound that keeps you fixed in the context of your world. And uh, you grow up here, you live as expected, you live a dignified, successful, and in a rich society, a richly um, developed life. On the other hand, you may flip out. You may have a feeling of incongruities here. This doesn't go with me. And then you move out. You move out into a realm of danger. This is known as the left-hand path. You follow the way of your own bliss. And you are in a realm for which there are no rules. And since your bliss is not mine, you don't know where you're going. 
Here you will live a life of danger, creativity, perhaps not a respected life, but certainly an interesting one. And uh, these are the two choices. And there are mythologies for both. There's the right-hand mythology, which is local to each culture. And then there is what I would call the general mythology of the hero journey, the night sea journey, the hero quest, where the individual is going to bring forth in his life something that was never beheld before, namely the fulfillment in time and space of his own potentialities, which are peculiar to himself. And that is the left-hand path, as I understand it. That is the left-hand path. That is the way of the warrior. That is the way of the lone wolf. It is the way of individuals. It is the way, I guess, of a certain kind of nonconformist, rebel type of personality archetype. A trickster, a fool. Someone who goes out and leaves the village and strikes up their own fortune, makes their own life. Goes into the wilderness and comes back transformed. So there's a lot of people that talk about the left-hand path and a, uh, they also call it the sinister path. I don't know necessarily much about it, honestly. I don't really care to, but I did a little bit of digging about why the left-hand path is also called the sinister path. And there's a lot of people that are really hardcore, devout, left-hand path people, and they're very outspoken. They have massive, massive numbers. It is a humongous population of people who are outwardly expressive, left-hand path practicing magicians, practicing occultists, and they have, in a very interesting way, relegated the term to a certain level of magic, a certain level of occult practice. I believe it is much more than that, much more than just a magical practice or an occult practice. I think, of course, if you think about the word occult, it's just hidden. And uh, left hand and sinister go synonymously with that hidden way, that hidden knowledge that must be uncovered, must be found, formed, honed, adopted, and as it transforms, it also transforms you. That's part of looking into the abyss, having the abyss look back at you forever. That the abyss will transform you. It will change you. And it's like uh, what I always say, once you see it, you can't ever unsee it. And so the left-hand path and the roots of the word sinister in its connotation, sinister is a Latin word for left-handed. Uh, the evolution of the meaning has turned left-handed into something evil and threatening. Uh, unfortunately, yes. And even relatively modern use of left is like kind of an awkward thing in like skateboarding, like goofy-footed, left-handed people um, have always been sort of, it's been, it has this awkward connotation to it. And in the past, to be left-handed was considered to be touched by the devil. In the Book of Knowledge, Wikipedia, they write historically the left side and subsequently left-handedness was considered negative in many cultures. The Latin word sinistra originally meant left but took on meaning of evil or unlucky by the classical Latin era and this double meaning survives still in European derivations, derivatives of Latin and in the English word for sinister as a negative, unlucky, evil, dark connotation. 
meanings gradually developed from use of these terms in the ancient languages and in many modern English European languages. Uh, the word for the direction right also means correct and proper and also stands for authority and justice and, you know, doing the right thing, go the right way, living a right life, right-minded. In most Slavic languages, the root prav is used in words carrying meanings of correctness and justice. So if you were left-handed or sinister, you were associated with evil, darkness, awkwardness, um, foolishness. And in time, sinister itself meant evil and threatening. Um, Etymology Online says that sinister attained this meaning in the early 15th century. The Oxford English Dictionary supports this by writing that the first uses of sinister was to mean malicious. And some uh, passages, some, some examples of this was uh, in the abundance of goods and behavior uh, to their sinister pleasure. In 1477, Earl Rivers dictates, uh, was it, uh, lest, ye be, uh, lest ye be let or withdrawn for thou by any sinister or evil temptation. There's a really early Roman uh, divination as auspices, auspiceness, uh, as aves, birds, and specio is to watch, the bird watching the Roman way, so to speak. So one way that auspices would use to guess good and bad omens was to watch which direction some auspice types of birds like ravens, crows, or eagles were flying by. The birds were supposed to play the role of messengers of the gods back in these days. This bird-watching, omen-taking, omen-calculating was also practiced in ancient Greece. If the birds were flying by on your right side, well, this was a good omen. And on the left side, the sinister side, well, that was a bad omen. Um, the word sinistra was already a synonym of bad omens in Old French, but it lost the meaning of left when it was introduced in the Middle English. In Italian, though, it still has both meanings. And uh, right-handed people have a natural tendency to associate negative sensations to their left-hand side. Yet the question was about the word sinister. And where does it trace back into Latin? The etymological path, as far as I understand it, is as follows. Early ancient Greek, left, awkward, ill omen, left, ill omen, uh, Latin sinister on the left-hand side, ill omen. Old French, it was a sinistral, sinistre, sinister, occasionally awkward, Left is already uh, called uh, gauche in 13th century French. Um, Middle English, 14th century, uh, sinister is unfavorable, deceitful, prejudicial, dishonest. So you can see over the last 600 years, uh, there's been a negative and dark connotation with just the word left and its translations from its original roots, sinistra. And so while we're thinking about this left-handed path and it's it's, it's being relegated to a certain dark and malevolent connotation. Just consider some of these points. A considerable number of languages have the awkward sense associated with the word for left, but very few of them also have the sense of ill omen, and that's mostly in the English translations. The Latin public and private life was heavily influenced by superstitions. Remember that. So, for instance, the reason why the Roman calendar evolved from lunar to solar is because of the drift accumulated by having only 29 and 31 days a month. An even number of days per month was an ill omen, so there were no 30-day months before the Julian calendar. Now, in this particular notation, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's a lot more to the lunar-solar thing, as I discussed a while back with my friend Mario Garza, the polar versus solar gods, but that's beside the point. Now, divination is much less prevalent in the left-hand way, 
the most romance, most Roman languages, romantic languages, talking about Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Romanian, have lost the coupling between left and ill omen, but they still retain that awkward sense. And by, by awkward sense, it's something that's not normal, not favorable. That's what we mean by awkward. So that left is, has been in the last, you know, 400 years, more associated in, in the English and Romantic languages uh, with, with uh, not favored than, than ill and, and negative and malevolent. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But we have, you know, there's a lot more historical and biblical context with which the left has been relegated into something dark and malign you know, evil. Um, ultimately, it's it's where where it is now is the association of directionally left hand with is basically attributed to the dominance of right-handed people within a population. So there's a majority rule. There's a there's a mob rule, uh, sort of a democratic opinion that right is right and left is just wrong. Uh, consequently, because of the awkwardness of motions made from the left side of one's body, being that the left-handed dominance is a bit of a minority um, but that darkness hasn't always been attached to the left side however i mean there were ancient celts for example that worshipped the left side associated it with femininity and the fertile womb but beginning with the appearance of eve on adam's left side in the accounts of genesis the christian tradition finds instances of the left side being pinned to immortality uh, the book of matthew describes how god will divide nations on the day of judgment Quote, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left, with those on the right sent to the kingdom of heaven, and those on the left cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So there you have a nice left-hand, right-hand division right there. Left-handed people comprise only about 10% of the population, by the way, and the preference for the left hand demonstrated by the popular minority was attributed to demonic possession and leading to accusations of witchcraft of course which is kind of why a lot of the metal and the the dark sort of leaning occultists gravitate toward it because it's super cool to be super evil or even just perceived as super evil i think it's all pretty laughable honestly in the 20th century anthropologists and psychologists identified left-handedness as a biological anomaly that was associated with deviancy but that could be corrected away with behavioral and physical reinforcement so if left is evil, then what about the right, right? Right? The historical associations of sinister with evil or backwardness is balanced linguistically by the fact that dexter, as we've heard, the Latin word meaning on the right side, comes with largely positive connotation that survives throughout its linguistic descendants. To be dexterous, for example, is to be good with the hands, like a surgeon, or a clever thinker, while one who is ambidextrous uses one's left and right hand equally well. So you got two right hands. What could be better than that? You're definitely going to heaven. The French word for right or straight, droit, gives us our word adroit, with a meaning similar to dexterous. The parallel here is carried by the other words, and French for the left is gauche, 
and, and used in English to mean lacking social grace. It's considered gauche to arrive without a gift for a host, for example. A synonym of gauche is also from French is maladroit, maladaptive, pretty close, which again utilizes the French word droit. And of course, the word right is used to mean correct, true, ethically sound, like, you know, again, right answer, didn't have the right address, I didn't do the right thing, blah, 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 blah. A popular maxim found on refrigerator magnets says that if the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body, then only the left-handed people are in their right minds. I think there's some truth to that. In spite of that, though, the linguistic bias against the left and the left-handedness in particular has been so entrenched in the English language and in the English uh, milieu, honestly, I guess I would say even diaspora, uh, and many other languages, and I think it's never, ever really going to go away. So what does this all have to do? What am I really even talking about here? Why left? Why right? What the fuck? Does it even matter if you're on a left-hand or a right-hand path? Is there a middle path? I think that there is, honestly. I think that there is. I think the left-hand path is the way of the warrior, uh, the, the darkness, uh, the danger, the wilderness. The right-hand path is one of a greater good, of a collective consciousness, of a uh, more communal, um, identifying power in numbers type of disposition. And I think that there is a middle path, honestly. I think left-hand paths would vehemently disagree with me. I think a lot of people are so binarily, arbitrarily bound by their own dispositions. But I think that there is a middle path. I think that middle path is the enlightened path. I think it's possible to take from both and carve out your own. I don't think that it's necessary to relegate oneself wholly and intrinsically to one single path, especially if either one of those paths are essentially the same path, but just through a different lens. And even more especially, if either one of those paths, both of those paths have already been established, traversed and made home by millions of others before you, why would you go walking into the same thing as everyone else? I think that the middle path is the one that I like to think that I am. I think it's it would be stupid to think that I don't gravitate toward the left-hand path. I don't call myself a left-hand path person. I don't call myself any kind of person. I call myself by my name. It, but that doesn't matter. I think that there are some things to be gained by learning about this. And if you are in any way, if you can in any way relate to or understand or feel a sort of kinship and uh, relationship with the next clip I'm about to play, you might just be a left-hand path type person. I say unto you, one must still have chaos in oneself to be able to give birth to a dancing star. I say unto you, you still have chaos in yourselves. Alas, the time is coming when man will no longer give birth to a star. Alas, the time of the most despicable man is coming. He that is no longer able to despise himself. Behold, I show you the last man. What did Nietzsche mean by this, this term, the last man? Well, for some of you, look in the mirror and you'll see the last man or woman. We are in the final days of a dying empire, my friends, and I'm not talking about the American empire. I'm talking about Western civilization. We 
or in Huxley's brave new world where we're not being stomped down by the boot of Orwellian authoritarianism, but instead made feeble by pleasure and complacency. You spend, your, you spend all day at a job you despise with people you can't stand, don't you? Just to go home and become one with your couch, beer in one hand, phone in the other, your TV on, and you nod like a mouth-breathing simian when the bullshit media tells you what to buy, how to vote, who to hate, what to think. Or you, you get on your phone for hours just to numb your brain, to get that endorphin rush when somebody likes the photo of your pet hamster or your gluten-free meal or curtains. Those real struggles of the past are now gone here in the West, at least for most of us. So we create strife by blowing shit out of, out of proportions so we can be a hero in our own story. But you're not really a hero, are you? Because the truth is, you are never in any real danger. We're too fucking soft here in the West where the poor are never in any real threat of starving. Instead, most of you have become fattened veal calves with no real cares, opinions, thoughts. You just want that next fix, that fix of pleasure. And many of you, if not most, will be killed by your need for pleasure, be it eating, drinking, smoking or drugs. There are no more dreams like you had when you were a kid, are there? Where did they go? You gave them away. You traded them for simple pleasures in the here and now. How did this happen? Why did it happen? Why did you allow it to happen? It's because you never really bothered to give your life meaning. I'm not talking about the meaning of life, some bullshit meaning handed down by Yahweh. No, I'm talking about a meaning to life, the gift you give yourself. What legacy do you want to leave behind after you die? That's the question you need to ask yourself if you want to find that meaning. Because the truth is, most people will say kind things about you at your funeral, even if you were a prick, but then you'll quickly be forgotten, a, a memory diluted down into nothing. You had the chance to make an impact, but instead chose to be a pimple on the ass of humanity, irritating for a while, and then you just went away. But I hope most of you who are watching this are not Nietzsche's last man or woman. I hope you're already on the left-hand path or about to step on it. And those who choose to take that first step do so because they have a drive to further their power, to become more than who they are. Because this is the path of self 
overcoming. The path to sinister illumination. But beware, for this is the path where the demons dwell, and you can either run screaming in horror or utilize them to your advantage to rescue you for the sake of your soul, the very foundation of your being. That's Leroy, and he sounds pretty intense. He sounds like, he seems like a pretty intense dude. However, I kind of get the feeling... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Deep inside, he's a big old softy. I think most people are that kind of have that disposition. Uh, but I think he's a pretty intense dude, and I'm trying to get him on the show to talk a little bit more in depth about this sinister path, this left-hand, right-hand path dichotomy and what that really means in the uh, self-governance, self-ownership, and reclamation of one's own internal warrior spirit. Now, what he was saying there at the very end, sinister illumination. It's not our fault that for the last 500 years, as I described earlier, we have been inundated with the connotation of sinister, which means left, to be attributed to awkwardness, vileness, malevolence, unfavorability, rotten, different, outside, weak. Um, that's what's been pounded into us. That's how it's been. That's how it's been. <sighs> canonized in in an etymological way against our will and against a better judgment and possibly even against the real truth. It is only through someone else's powerful opinion that the left is less than the right. And so when we hear the word sinister, uh, it is not our fault that we have this instant idea of what that word means and that instant idea has come about through a specific type of linguistic engineering to connote a level of indecency a level of violence to that particular word when all it really means as I've laid out earlier is it just means left which is the opposite of right and the same could be said for the word right, as we talked about earlier. It is the righteousness, it is the straight, it is unbent, it is the way that the sun rises, and the, you know, the right hand on the, on, the, on the side of the earth of the, of the rising sun, and all the birds flying with their messages, and all that kind of noise. And so when Leroy talks about this, this is just my interpretation. It's my opinions. I don't know. I don't want a bunch of left-hand pathers coming at me saying I got it wrong because I'm not claiming to have got it right in the first place. It is my interpretation that when Leroy describes the sinister knowledge, the, the, the sinister illumination, what I believe he is trying to express is a hidden knowledge, which is another word for occult. Occult is hidden knowledge.
And then when he goes on to describe the left-hand path being filled with demons. Now, there are many occult practitioners that I know in my real life, and there are many occult practitioners who operate online, behind screens, and in behind personas and avatars that describe their relationships with various demons. But what I believe Leroy is getting at in that expression is that those demons are archetypes within our mind, that those are aspects of our personalities in a very Jungian sense, that those demons can control and obliterate us, and we can run away from them in horror when we discover what we are actually truly capable of in the face of darkness, in the midst of absolute oblivion in the wilderness, what we are actually capable of doing that those are the demons that he speaks of. That's what I think, anyway, my opinion. It is not actual demons being evoked from the bowels of Hades. Rather, they are demons within the auspices of our minds, aspects of our own personalities, aspects of our own manifestations of our soul in multiple different dimensions at once. Archetypes. Jungian aspects of our own capabilities that would be horrifying in different contexts and in different scenarios, especially in a binary sense of left or right, up or down, black is white, good, evil, collective, individual. That's what I think. But I also don't think that it has to be so binary. I do believe that there is a middle way, a middle path, a middle pillar of, of enlightenment. Honestly, I hate to say it, that is where I strive to be. I do not strive to always be the heretical outlander, nor do I strive to be the, the arc builder for the community. I simply want to own and know my own soul. I want to know and befriend the darkest and the lightest of archetypes, of personalities, of aspects within my own ability and my own creation. I want to know all of what my form and what my time in this plane really means and so I do these things I make the work that I make I live and breathe the life that I live and breathe in order to further understand the aspect of this form and all of its variations in the spectrum of consciousness I think the willingness to do that is a left hand kind of thing I think so and in a lot of ways I really do identify, and that's why I think it's important to be able to pivot from one to the other. And I think that a lot of the hardcore left-hand path type people out there will say that you can't, it's going to drive you insane because you're going to be drawn to either one all the time. You'll never find a reckoning. You'll never be able to reconcile uh, the, the two together into one. I don't necessarily agree with that, but of course I don't know. I don't know. I'm very much a novice in many ways. I don't know. But it's the willingness to understand and to learn, I think, which lends me more to the left. One thing is for certain, though, I definitely abhor groups. I definitely abhor collectivism, hive mind, group identification under any circumstances. And I know that by taking that left-hand path stance, I am dooming myself to a certain level of isolation to a certain level of ridicule and speculation, and potentially, and more regularly, a healthy amount of despair. And I am perfectly comfortable with that. 
but it's despair that leads us there. It's not hope. Hope keeps everything the fucking same. Hope is keep trusting tradition, keep trusting the institutions, the past will guide us into the future. No, it fucking won't. Well, the past will guide us into the future, but this institution that's guiding us into the future is a cattle cart on the way to a gulag or a fucking gas chamber. This, we are not going anywhere good. We are not going anywhere good right now. We're going to the bad place again. We have a narrow window of opportunity to stop it. The narrowest window of opportunity to stop it. So if you despair, you're sane. You're sane. Now, I know I got a little off the rails with the uh, etymological significance of left and right in the left-hand path kind of way. And, uh, but I hope that you haven't forgotten the article from Eisenstein that I read earlier and kind of drove that home, I would like to think, uh, with the Joseph Campbell piece followed up by Leroy's piece and can you kind of, hopefully you can kind of see where I'm going with this like there is a certain level of ideological biblical significance that goes along with these decisions that we make in our lives and the directions with which we travel and that which catapults us into further explorations into further momentum into the future that we are creating whether mimetically or physically or emotionally, psychologically, we are creating these things with every turn, with every moment and every breath. And so I'm hoping that you're staying track with me here because I've been talking for a long time. I've done a couple of podcasts today and it's about one o'clock in the morning and I'm, maybe I'm kind of losing focus, uh, but I'm gonna kind of bring it back around uh, to the, the, mob, the mob morality versus individual choice and freedom, I guess, but also not just the freedom that people think about, but the freedom to actually have autonomy and agency and sovereignty over your own, not only your own body, but your mind and your spirit and your soul as well. And that comes with a very steep price. That comes with a very stark and sometimes a violent decision you have to make on your own for yourself to leave, to leave home to leave the group, to leave the collective, and to go into your, the wilderness of your own creation, to go into the wilderness of your own mind and face the demons of your own capabilities. There is sufficient historical context for, having, for that have, having happened in the past. And there are significant people from which we can draw uh, our, our own path forward through looking back in the lives and paths of other people, most notably which comes to mind in the context of the left-hand path, individual ideation and individual sovereignty, is Friedrich Nietzsche. With all the bullshit going on of late, I think it's important to go over some basic tenets of sinisterous or left-hand path philosophy because the voice of the individual is getting lost in all this political mayhem. To begin with, I despise mobs and hate mob mentality. I understand anger and frustration, but a mob is nothing more than a mindless creature, a monster that feeds on emotion and creates chaos. Those on the left-hand path, we would never join a mob. Why? 
because sinisterists have minds of their own and can't be pushed by the wave of emotion. Besides, belief based on emotion is the key ingredient of faith, and no sinisterist goes down the path on faith, but instead gnosis, knowledge. Which leads to a strong sense of individuality. Friedrich Nietzsche, out of all the great thinkers, has best crystallized the philosophical fundamentals of sinisterist ethics with his emphasis on individuality. Fuck the collective, because it all begins with you and generates outward from there. Now think about it. You have to be true to yourself, respect yourself, before you can be worth a damn to anyone else. It's easy to spot those with little self-worth because they work backwards. They want to save the world while having little regard for themselves, their families, or local communities. Those with self-contempt want to get lost in something bigger than themselves, a cause. They become faceless. They're no longer the individual they despise, that face in the mirror, but instead an anonymous entity in a movement they claim to love. And this type, this anonymous drone, can be found on both ends of the political spectrum. So it makes no sense to me why either of these extremes would claim Nietzsche as their own when he would have detested both. Take, for instance, the political left. He called socialism the tyranny of the meanest and the dumbest, Christian slave morality without the God, and... Nietzsche believed liberalism in general led to revolution, bloodletting, and crime. But wait a second, you on the far right. He also had a contempt for nationalism, which he saw as petty, provincial, and a threat to human freedom. And that demagogues would use nationalism to arouse and exploit the fears of the masses. But, you may ask, why did the Nazis love Nietzsche if he would have hated them? Reason was, was after his death, his anti-Semitic sister Elizabeth, who embodied much that Nietzsche disdained, suppressed his works, then edited out the parts she didn't like. She would later join the Nazi party, giving them some handy quotes for propaganda. Adolf Hitler embraced Nietzsche's belief in the uncommon man, the ubermensch, but Nietzsche's meaning pertained to the strong individual, not the master race or state. Hitler's national socialism is a manifestation of state authority, and Nietzsche despised the authority of the state. He saw the modern state as a vehicle for mass power and a squanderer of exceptional talent. The state was not created to uplift the individual, but to satisfy the many. The state will give you everything if you will adore 
and both political extremes lead to the same thing, complete state authority or totalitarianism. And you can't defeat totalitarianism with totalitarianism. It doesn't work. Same cult. You're still left with the same thing. For Nietzsche, it was not the type of government that concerned him, but who the government served, individual or collective, the thinking person or that unthinking monstrosity. He held that statism served the monster and laid traps for all who dared to be exceptional. So, in conclusion, my friends, are you an individual or a piece of an unthinking monster? Are you motivated by knowledge or emotion? Do you dare to have respect for yourself and be exceptional? Or do you hate what you see in the mirror and choose to be anonymous, faceless in a mob? The choice is yours. Anonymous faceless mobs of black block masked hidden obscure obfuscated terrified replicating the mimetic discontent of another into a surge a wave of utter incoherence formerly individuals now coalesced into a seething thought form golem of emotion, devoid of any individual working, devoid of any individual activation, all of them a hive producing nothing but sap. Something tells me Leroy is not walking around with a mask. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I, I tend to relate more, I guess, to uh, the sinister side of things. And it's not, uh, as we've discussed earlier, we talked about, it is not necessarily a dark or malevolent thing. It is not our fault that that word has been associated with such things as black magic and witchcraft. And there's a whole population of people out there that are supposed uh, pseudo-practitioners, real magicians out there who are very real and very powerful, uh, who uh, would use that term sinister. Uh, But I think it is a lot more than that. I think it is a lot more than just a left-right paradigm. I think it's something completely different, and uh, and I think that there is a middle way, and I try to strive to 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 maintain that middle way for myself, and uh, and I do that through this podcast. And if you like this podcast and you want to hear more of it, uh, please continue to tune in. If you'd like to support this work, any and all contributions are happily accepted and appreciated more than ever. Now, um, if I wanted to make money off this show this show would be completely different. I know the formula that is successful uh, to make money off of. I know that there are multiple angles with which I could capitalize off of this platform to make a bunch of money. That is not the goal. The goal is to produce something of value for people who appreciate things of value and are willing to pay for that value no matter if they got it for free or not. That is value for value, and that is the model that I use. And I think it is the future, and I think it is the only way out and the only way to decentralize from the mainstream, from 
the bullshit platforms that are out there behind paywalls where there are corporate interests taking a cut of it no matter what you do. I understand the same thing could be said for PayPal, for Venmo. It's all the same fucking thing. Even the Bitcoin thing is kind of a bit of a scam, but we do what we can, when we can, how we can. So if you can... Uh, I, I appreciate it very much now more than ever. Let's keep the wheels turning and the train on the tracks here at the Aviary Chalet and the darkened, blackened, dead of night hillside here in Northwest Oregon. I appreciate all you guys. And uh, until, I, uh, until I talk to you next, be well, get some rest, take a shower, have some sex, eat some good food, pet an animal, snuggle up tight with someone that you love, and do your own fucking thing. Fuck the collective. Bye.